If you have your Bible with you, to turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1 as we conclude our eight-week series on overcoming obstacles. The series began with the, the Israelites, the nation of Israel enslaved in Egypt under the hand of Pharaoh. And then God reaches out his mighty right hand and rescues and saves these people. They leave Egypt, they cross the Red Sea, they go into the desert. They approach the promised land and God tells them to go in. But because of their fear and lack of faith, they turn around and God says, you need to spend another 40 years in the desert. And then what happens is the next generation after 40 years approaches the edge of the promised land. And that's where we'll pick up our story this morning. It's a story of a decision they have to make. A decision about whether or not they will trust God, believe his promises, and enter into the promised land. I was thinking about this story when I was thinking about preparing for this. I was thinking about um, an opportunity I had when I was in college to study abroad. In the fall of 2008, through my school, I got to study abroad in London. And one of the best parts of studying abroad in a place like London is on the weekends, they would give you long weekends to go explore other cities in Europe. And so I remember a few buddies of mine, we got together and we went to Florence for a weekend. And we were excited to go there and check out the city and the food and the museums and the art and all the different things that were there in Florence. But when you study abroad and you're in college, two things are true. One is it's exciting and there's new places and new opportunities. But the second is you're still in college and so you're broke and a little bit sad about it. <laughs> And so that's kind of what was happening here. But my friend wanted, was, got really excited about this museum. He said, we got to go to this museum. So we look it up and we find that it's a pretty expensive one to go to. And so I think I'm going to have to pass on that one. So he goes out and he goes and he finds us a deal. And I'm asking, okay, how much does this cost? And he goes, here's how much it costs. But I found us a deal. And this deal is going to make it like half the cost totally worth it. And so I'm wrestling with the cost and finally decide, okay, you know what? I think I can afford that. We rearrange our day, we make the trip, we get on down to the museum, we walk up to the front doors of the museum, and soon enough we learn that that museum is closed on that particular day. Now there's a reason I tell you this fairly unremarkable story of travel, and the reason is because of this. I want to point out that when I was thinking about going to this museum, I had one question on my mind, and the question was this, can I afford it? How much does it cost? That was the question that I was asking at the time. But it turns out the question I should have been asking was a different kind of question altogether. It was this question, is the museum even open? Is this even an opportunity that I can take? So, so what happened is I made a decision based off one question when I really should have been asking a different kind of question. And that would lay the framework for the entire sermon we're about to talk about this morning. So here's the principle I want to teach, that the questions you ask will shape the decisions you make. That's true when you're in Florence trying to visit a museum, trying to figure out if it's open. But it's also true in every other area of your life. It's true if you're thinking about moving or selling your house or buying a new one. It's true if you're thinking about getting married or having children or having another child. It's true in every area of your life, large and small, the questions you ask will determine and shape and decide the decisions you make. Should I retire? Should I take this new job? Should I take this new opportunity? Should I step into this ministry or step out of this ministry? The questions you ask will shape that. And if that's true, then the simple proposition we need to understand this morning is that better questions lead to better decisions. The better questions you ask, the better decisions you will make. And this morning, as we look at the decision the people of God in Israel are making about going into the promised land, I want to present to you five questions to ask before you decide. See, I'm convinced that in this room there are people making decisions right now 
decisions about your life or your health or your family, about your business or your future or your employment. And those are all good decisions. And this morning, I can't answer those questions for you. I can't give you the answer to every question you have. But what I hope I can do is present to you a number of questions that arise out of this text that will help you make the right decision. So I want to show you this in Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, here's how the story begins. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. So we'll pause here to recognize that the entire story we're about to read this morning happens in a context, and it happens after an event. And the context and the event is the death of Moses, which to you or me just sounds like, of course, Moses died. But for the people of Israel, this was a traumatic event. This was a life-changing event. This was an event that hit them so hard that they actually needed to pause and weep over it. See, Moses was the one who encountered God in the burning bush. He's the one who rescued them from Egypt. He's the one who's led them through the desert. He's the one who's led them up until this point. And now their leader, the one they trusted, the one who served them so well, he has died. And there is a grief that strikes the people in Israel. In fact, if you turn your Bible back just one page to the final chapter of Deuteronomy, it says this in chapter 33. It says, the Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. So here's what happens. Moses dies and they are grieving. They are sad. There is a trauma. There is a grief that they're experiencing. And they decide to set aside a certain amount of time. In this case, it was 30 days to grieve the death of Moses. Now, this isn't a suggestion from the Bible that you only get 30 days to grieve if someone you love dies. That's not what this is. But what this is, is a recognition that there was a period, a time frame where they were going to grieve. And the observation I want to make is that they do not decide to obey God and walk into the promised land until that time of grieving is over. They have a time of grief. And after the time of grief, after it says, after the time of weeping and mourning was over, they make the decision to go into the promised land. So this leads us to our first of five questions this morning. And it's a question we need to ask before we even make the decision. And it's the timing question. And it's this, is this the right time for me to make this kind of decision? Is this the right time? I want to ask that of you this morning. Is this the right time for you to make the decision that's being put in front of you right now? Or might it be another time that it's actually time to make that decision? I'll put it this way. It's like um, with my wife and I, when we have our, our three kids running around, there's times where our children are actually calm. Our six and four and two-year-old are actually just playing and they're lovely and they're wonderful. And so sometimes what will happen is we'll start to get into a discussion uh, about logistics or finances or coordination of calendars or something like that. We're having this discussion. And doesn't it seem like little kids have a nose for when you're talking about something meaningful? They, they know. And so they can sense it. And so they start acting up and taking each other's toys and falling all over each other. We only have three kids, but in moments like that, it feels like we have 13 kids somehow. Um, and it's chaos in the house. And this happened yesterday in the Howard home. Danny and I looked at each other and said, maybe this is not the right time yeah, to have this discussion. See, sometimes it's not the right time to decide. Or it's like this here at the church. From time to time, we'll have opportunities. And they're good opportunities and wonderful opportunities. And they'll be presented to us. But sometimes they'll be presented in the busiest seasons, like Easter or Christmas. And so oftentimes we'll find ourselves, let's say in the middle of December, we get presented with an opportunity of something we could do or move on. And we'll say, this sounds amazing. But let's wait until after the new year, until after Christmas, because right now is not the best time for us to really think through and make this decision. 
So this goes for all the areas of your life, large and small, that when you make the decision actually impacts everything else. When you make a decision changes how you make the decision. So this is true for you if you, like the people of Israel, have lost someone important in your life, a friend or a family member. Oftentimes after the death of someone we love is not the right time to make major decisions about our life. The same would be true for you if you've gone through a breakup or if your marriage has ended in divorce. It's not the best time for you to make major, large, life-changing decisions about what to do next. The same would be true for you if you come into a big inheritance, a large amount of money. Sometimes we want to spend it all right now or figure out what to do. And oftentimes the wisest thing is to do nothing for a period. Because when you make the decision, impacts how you make the decision. See, certain decisions in your life you cannot put off. They're urgent. You have to make right now. If you and some friends gather in the lobby immediately after the church service today, and the question is posed, where shall we go to lunch today? You do not get to go. Let's make this decision tomorrow. (laughs) It's a right now decision. But certain decisions do not have to be made right now. And I want to encourage you, if you are in a season of transition, of grieving, of pain, of loss, if you're in a season like the people of Israel, where you're not sure which way is up, it might be the right time to not make that decision a lot like it goes for my wife and I, like when we have had um, all of our children. Here's the funny thing about being married and not having kids. When you're married and you don't have kids, the question everyone asks you all the time is, when are you going to have children? And then you have your first baby. You're holding a newborn in your hand, and it does not take long for the question to change to when or if you are going to have another child. And I got to tell you this. When a newborn parent is holding a newborn in their arms, that is the worst time for them to make this decision. They haven't slept, they haven't eaten, they don't know which way is up, and they've forgotten their own name three times today. Like, this is what happens. And so for my wife and I, we made this decision early on with these kids, is we're not even going to have the discussion about whether or not we're going to have another kid until six months later. And what that did is it freed us up. Because sometimes, not making the decision now allows you to make better decisions later. And that's what we learned with our kids, and that's what I hope we all know sometimes. A decision has to be made right now. But other times, the very best thing to do is to wait. The first question is the timing question. Is this the right time for me to make this kind of decision? It goes on this way in verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert of Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates, and all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. So God speaks, and he speaks to Joshua, son of Nun. And he says, my Moses, my servant is dead, but now you get ready. You're going to cross in across the Jordan River, and you are going to take this land that I am giving to you. See, this is the next and most important question we're going to ask. After we decide when we're going to make the decision, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the next thing we need to wrestle with is the simple question I call the obedience question. And that's simply this. What did God tell me to do? For the Israelites, the decision was already made. If they trust God and he is in charge, God told them to go into the land and they're doing it. And if you are a follower of Jesus who says Jesus is your Savior and Lord, it means that the decision on many things in your life has already been made. It's already been made because Jesus is Lord, and to call him Lord is to say he's king, he's master, he's in charge. 
And when we look to the scriptures, what we find immediately is there are certain decisions that have already been made for us. Like if you're wrestling with the decision, should I abandon my marriage and break my marriage vows and run off with someone else? That decision has been made already if you're a follower of Jesus. It's clear in the scriptures. If you're wrestling with the question, should I give generously or give my money to the work of the Lord at the church or the poor or global missions? If you're a follower of Jesus, that decision's already been made because God told you what to do. If you're asking the question, should I cheat my employer or should I lie to them, lie to my boss? That decision, if you're a follower of Jesus, has already been made. See, when we call Jesus Lord, when we call him king, when we say he's in charge, what we're declaring is that there are certain decisions for us that are already made because God spoke clearly in his word. That's the obedience question. And I want you to know this. Obedience is always going to be something that costs us, always going to be something that demands something out of us. Listen, I'll put it four ways this morning. Number one, obedience means saying no when you want to say yes. When your flesh, everything inside of you wants to say yes, but you know it's wrong, so you say no. When everyone around you is doing this thing and no one thinks it's a big deal, no one would even frown upon you, maybe no one would even know. Obedience means saying no when you want to say yes. Listen, obedience means going slow when you want to go fast. God calls us to patience, to gentleness, Sometimes in business or as a leader or someone in your family, you just want to bulldoze over everyone and make that decision and move forward. But to be obedient to Christ means you might need to be patient. You might need to slow down. You might need to include others in the conversation. Obedience means, it may mean taking less when you want to take more. It may mean in a business deal, you don't take everything you could possibly take. It may mean you're generous with someone else. It may mean that you are out to lunch or out to dinner with your family and you're trying to figure out how to equally divide the bill and instead you're just generous to those who are in your family or to your friends. That's what obedience might look like. And finally, obedience might mean staying put when you want to leave. If God has called you to something, if he's called you to a ministry, to a community, to a church, to a business, to an organization, to a company, if he's called you towards something, You stay put even if your flesh wants to leave, even if it would be easier to hit the eject button. See, what so many people do is they look at obedience and they see the cost and they think that doesn't work in the real world. They say, Brian, in the real world, you gotta take what's yours. In the real world, you gotta cut some corners. In the real world, you gotta make sure just kind of it works out and just do what you need to do. But I've never been convinced that's true because I'm convinced in the real world, there is a real living God and a real Holy Spirit who is on the move in your life and in mine. And I love the words of Andrew Murray here who says this, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to him. You make a decision, it seems like it's not in your best interest, but it's out of obedience to God. That decision, when you yield to him, God takes full responsibility for that. And if you live an entire life out of obedience to Christ, where you obey his commands no matter what the cost, God says, I take full responsibility for that life because you walked in obedience to me. The second question is the obedience question. What did God tell me to do? Verse five takes us to the next one. It says this, no one, God says, will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left that you might be successful wherever you go. 
Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So God knows that the people of Israel as they enter into this land are going to struggle. He knows that there are going to be times where they're not sure that God is with them. So he assures them three times, I will be with you always. You think I've abandoned you, but I won't. He knows there's times they're going to be afraid. So he tells them three times, be strong and courageous. He knows they'll be tempted to disobey the law, to discard it when it becomes dis- like inconvenient, to kind of push it away when it's not easy. And so he tells them over and over again, listen to me, obey my law in its fullness. So here's what God understands about big decisions and major moments in your life. Every time we make big decisions, there's a little voice inside of us that wants to speak. And sometimes that voice is pointing out some things. It's a red flag or it's a little yellow flag. It's a tension. It's an insecurity we feel. They're going into the promised land. Is God really going to be with us? Is God going to abandon us? Should we really walk in obedience to the commands of God or just do things the way we want to do things? And what God is doing is he is addressing these tensions, these insecurities, these yellow and red flags up front. He's giving them the answers to these tensions they feel inside of them. Because God understands something simple that we need to understand as well. That when we make major decisions, those little red flags, that little voice of conscience, that little thing inside of us whispering that insecurity is always there. It's always there. I love what Andy Stanley says in his book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. He talks about this internal feeling. He says that internal hesitation, that red flag, is often God's way of turning us in another direction. People yielded to God don't attempt to play God. They don't predict outcomes. Instead, they surrender. They obey and they follow. This book he wrote, Better Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets, I recommend to you if you're in the midst of making a big decision. He offers a number of questions, some of which we'll use, including this one right here, our third question. It's the conscience question. And here's the question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? For the Israelites, the tension is, is God going to abandon us? Is God really on our side? Should we really walk in obedience to him and to his law? That's the tension that's rising up within them. And for all of us, as we make major decisions, there's a tension that exists. And our job is to pay attention to that tension rather than bury it or ignore it. Uh, Like think of this example, imagine you're going out to buy a new car and you're excited about it. You've got a budget in mind. You know what you're going to do. You start looking on the internet and suddenly you find a car and it's just a little bit outside your budget. And you get excited about it and it starts to grow in price and you know it's getting a little more expensive than it should be, but then you do the test drive and oh, it felt so good and it's a new car and those chemicals just make your brain explode and you're so excited about this car. And as you're getting so excited, maybe your spouse is getting excited, there's that little thing inside of you that says, am I overextending here? Is this a little too much? Can we actually afford that? That's the tension you need to pay attention to. Now, sometimes the answer to that question is, actually, we can't afford this. You work through the tension and you move through it, but what you don't do is ignore it. What you must do is pay attention to it. Or it's like this, if you work in a job where you get to hire people, Oftentimes in the hiring process, there's people you know from the beginning won't fit. And oftentimes in the hiring process, there's people who are just a slam dunk and you love everything about them. But sometimes in the hiring process, what happens is there's someone everyone seems to like, but there's that little catch in your spirit. That thing they said in the interview, that one thing on their resume, and it's bothering you. And you know what we must do in those moments? You pay attention to the tension. 
That little voice inside of you, that conscience, which is often the Holy Spirit speaking to you, reminding you, asking you, challenging you in the midst of a decision. This is true for big decisions in your life. It's also true for the small ones. When you're out with friends or family and you think, oh, I should just have one more drink. Should I really? Should I really stay a little longer? Maybe I should leave. Maybe this is unsafe. Maybe this is unhealthy. Maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't be talking to this person. Maybe I shouldn't be texting with them. Maybe I shouldn't be communicating with them on Facebook. It's that little catch, that little whisper, that little voice inside of you. And what we're called to do is to pay attention to that tension. Because if we don't pay attention to the tension, there is an inevitable and obvious consequence. So this morning, I'd submit to you that most of the decisions, many of the decisions, many of the regrets you have in your life come after you failed to pay attention to the tension. The things you regret most, the things you wish you could take back from last week or last year or 10 years ago or 30 years ago are things that did not actually surprise you. You kind of had a sense that something was wrong. You knew you shouldn't be doing that, talking to her, doing that thing, going to that place, going on that trip. You kind of knew this wasn't right, but you've suppressed that voice. You pushed it down. You ignored it. And most of our regrets come when we fail to pay attention to the tension. So here's the question. How do you pay attention to the tension? How do we do that? The answer's simple. Number one, you notice it. You notice there's something in my gut. Call it a red flag, a yellow flag, a check in your spirit, uh, your conscience speaking to you, the Holy Spirit. You notice that God is doing so. You just notice that God is speaking. There's something here worth paying attention to. The second is you name it. You know, I'm feeling this tension. Maybe we can't afford this car. You speak up and say, you know, I've got this tension. Maybe we shouldn't hire this person. Maybe we should, but I just want to work through this one issue. Maybe I shouldn't go to that place. Maybe I shouldn't talk to that person. You name it for what it is. And then number three, you bring it to God. You bring it before the Lord. Because again, sometimes the tension is resolvable. The people of God would be afraid and they'd have to bring that tension before the Lord. Have you abandoned us, God? And God works it through with them. No, he hasn't. Should we really obey this part of the law? It seems kind of strange. And God says, yes, you should. See, that tension doesn't mean you stop, but it does mean you pause and pay attention and allow the Lord to work in that moment. The third question we're asking is the simple question. Um, is there a tension we need to pay attention to? Verse 10 goes on this way. It says, so Joshua ordered the officers and the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan River and from here and go and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving to you for your own. There's two things I want you to notice on the screen right now in this text. The first is the bottom verse. It says that the Lord God is giving it to you. So on the one hand, God says, I'm giving you this land. It is yours. It is your possession. It's your inheritance. Here you go. If you take it, if you walk in obedience to me, it is yours for the taking. And on the other hand, I want you to notice that second line there where it says, get your provisions ready. In other words, get everything together because you're going to battle. You're going to war. This is going to be difficult. So on the one hand, you've got a promise of God. On the other hand, you have them preparing. On the one hand, you say, God, God says you're going to have it. And on the other hand, God never made the promise that the conquest of the land would be simple or easy or painless. And so what do they do? They hear the promise, they believe the promise, and they start to count the cost. They start to get their provisions ready. And this leads us to our fourth question. And here's the fourth question. What will this decision actually cost me? The decision you're about to make. What will it, and then here's the key word, actually cost you? 
So you think when it comes to major decisions, a lot of us have a fuzzy sense of what something will cost us. But we've not actually sat down to think, what is this actually going to take from me? What will this actually cost? It's like this. So if you've ever bought and sold a home, you understand this. Um, years ago, Danny and I had our first home here in Thousand Oaks and loved the house. It was a great place to live. But then as we started having kids, we realized, hey, I think it's probably best to move out of this house for a few different reasons. And so we looked at selling one house and buying the next house. Now, the simple analysis would be you go on Zillow.com and you look at how much is our house worth? How much is this house? Oh, it'll cost us the difference. But anyone who has ever bought and sold a house knows that is not how buying and selling houses works. Yes, there is the difference in cost between the house, but then there are also taxes and there are fees. And then there are fees on the taxes and taxes on the fees. And then there is paying the moving company and having the moving company do that. And then there is replacing the things the moving company broke. And then it is the new home where your furniture doesn't fit. So you have to pay to haul off the old furniture and buy new furniture and new decorations. And then your dream home three months in will have a major issue that you will need to fix. The question when you are moving homes is not what's the simple analysis. It's what is this actually going to cost? I actually think a lot of us are very good at making those decisions and very aware of those decisions on big financial purchases in our life. But I think most human beings are terrible at this when it comes to other kinds of decisions. You make a decision and there are consequences. You make a decision and it costs you something. Am I going to retire from this job? Maybe retirement is exactly the right thing for you to do, but don't pretend it doesn't come with costs financial costs or relational costs. Maybe you need to step out of a ministry for some time and that's the right decision for a million reasons, but it will come with a certain cost. I was talking to someone who said I had to step out of a ministry. I was in a leadership role. I was loving it. I felt like it was the right time, but it came with the spiritual cost. I started to feel myself withering away spiritually because I wasn't investing in anyone else. See, every decision we make, when we make these decisions, there is an actual cost that's associated with us. And that cost may be worth it. It may be a good cost. It may be worth every single cent. And yet at the same time, we need to calculate the cost and be sure we know what we're getting ourselves into. Jesus himself says this. Jesus, he's teaching, and he says this in Luke chapter 14. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. See, there's a decision I hope every single person in this room and listening online makes. And that's the decision to follow Jesus to lay down your life and everything in it to follow after Jesus. But Jesus says even that decision, the best and the right decision comes with a cost. And you need to count the cost. You need to know the cost because what Jesus is teaching is a simple principle that's true of the decision you're wrestling over right now. And it's this, the decisions always come with a cost. For the people of Israel, they gathered their provisions. They gathered up all they had because they knew there was a cost of making the decision to obey God. The decision is worth it. The cost was worth it. But we all need to analyze, what does this actually cost me? That's our fourth question. Now on to our fifth. I'll show you it this way in verse 12. It says, but to the Reubenites, to the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, remember the command that the Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you after he said, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. 
Your wives and your children and your livestock may stay in the land that Moses gave you east of the Jordan, but all of your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them until the Lord gives them rest as he has done for you, and until they too have taken possession of the land the Lord your God is giving them. After that, you may go back to occupy your land, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you, east of the Jordan, toward the sunrise. Now this is an important paragraph in the story, but it's one that you'll only understand if you understand some basic geography of Israel and of where these tribes live. So let me show you a map here. And this map is of the 12 tribes of Israel and where they are called to live. If you're new to the Bible, the 12 tribes of Israel are almost like 12 states. They're all part of Israel and that they live in different places. They have different heritage. And so here you'll see the 12 tribes of Israel and right down the middle of the screen, you'll see the Jordan River running right through it. Now, this is where they are. They are on the edge of the Jordan River on this side, on the east side, and they are about to walk into the promised land to take the land that God has promised to them. But I want you to notice here who God is talking to in this paragraph we just read. They're on the east side, this side of the Jordan. There are three tribes to notice. The first is Manasseh. You'll see that big yellow part. The second is Gad. And the third is Reuben. Their land is on this side of the Jordan River. So you got to imagine for those three tribes, there's got to be a little bit of like, we're already here. We don't need to go fight. We're just going to hang out right here because that's their problem, not our problem. The rest of you should go in and go to war and go to battle and take the land that the Lord is giving you. Yeah, go, go do all of that stuff. But we're just going to plant down right here because we're already set. We and our families, me and mine, we are taken care of. We're all set. And this is a fundamentally human thing to do. I'm all set. I'm good. I have what I need. No decision needs to be made because I'm set where I am. And God looks at these three tribes of Manasseh and Gad and Reuben. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And here's the words he says to them in verse 14. He says, your wives, your children, and your livestock may stay in the land Moses gave you east of the Jordan. In other words, your wives... Your children and your cows can stay right here. But all of your fighting men ready for battle must cross over ahead of your fellow Israelites. You are to help them. You're to help them. So in other words, yeah, you're here and your land's here. And technically speaking, you don't have to cross over the Jordan and fight in order to get your land. But these are your people. This is your family. These are the people that you are supposed to care about. They are your nation. You are to go on and go ahead of them. And then God looks at them and says, you are to help them. See, God's standard is not, you're all set where you are, so just don't worry about it. If you and yours are taken care of, then just sit back and relax. That is not the standard God has when it comes to our relationship with others, which is our fifth and final question that I want us to ask. And it is the hardest question and the highest bar for us. And it's the relationship question. It's this, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? So see, what this question does is it raises the bar on every other thing we might do as followers of Jesus. So one of the things we can recognize as much as we believe the Bible is true and walk in obedience to its commands, there are all kinds of things the Bible doesn't give you a specific command on. It doesn't tell you where to live or who to marry or how many children to have. It doesn't tell you what you're supposed to do in this situation or in that. There's a million situations you could list that the Bible doesn't have a specific command to. 
You're out to dinner with your family or your friends and the check comes and you're trying to figure out how to divide it all up and you're trying to do that. The Bible has no formula, no command in that place. But the command and the question that if we are followers of Jesus, we must ask is this simple question. What does love require of me? See, this command fills in the gaps between all the commands that we say, oh, the Bible didn't say anything about this thing and insists that we rise to a higher level. It's like this. Imagine if this weekend I got on a plane and went to go see my parents. And I spent the weekend with my parents. And on Friday night, I sat down to dinner with them. And as I was sitting down to dinner and we were serving up the food, I said, mom, dad, I have a question for you for this weekend. And I said, what's the question? I said, can you tell me the rules for the weekend? And they look at me dumbfounded. They say, the rules? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. tell me the rules. What am I allowed to do? What am I allowed to not do? Uh, like, who, who's supposed to do the dishes? Who's supposed to do this? Am I supposed to ask you questions about you or no? Like, how, what are the rules? Now, 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 you would look at me if I told you this story and say, what, what are you talking about rules? Rules are great for your four-year-old. Rules are great for your two-year-old. But when you're 35 years old and sitting with your parents, you don't need rules anymore. And if I ask you, but what am I supposed to do with my parents? You would just very simply tell me you should love them. You should love them. So it's not a question of who's supposed to do the dishes. It's like, I'll step in and do that for you, mom. It's not a question of like, am I supposed to like care about their lives and pray for them? It's like, no, let me just step in and do that because that's what love requires of us. So when we ask the question, what does love require of us? It raises us to a different kind of level. It demands that we do more than we think we should do. It demands that we live out this Christian faith in a way that's not just trying to check the boxes and follow the rules. I love how Andy Stanley, again, in that book says it this way. It says this question, what does love require of me? Gives voice to God's will for us on issues where the Bible is silent. It fills in the gaps with disquieting precision. It succeeds with where concordances fail. It quashes the insipid justification, but the Bible doesn't say anything's wrong with blank. It closes loopholes. It exposes hypocrisy. It stands as judge and jury. It's so simple, but it's inescapably demanding. See, this is what it does for us. This question, this question even posed in this book here of what does love demand of me? We can't escape it. We can't wiggle out of it. We can't get around it. We can't get loopholes to it. It's like if you are a married person in this room, like I want you to know that one of the worst things you can do is think to yourself, I'm going to do this. And technically speaking, it's not cheating on my spouse. Technically speaking, it's not violating my marriage vows. If you are doing something and you're in a place where you're going, technically speaking, at that point, you are no longer walking in love toward your spouse. The same would be true for you with your children. Do you know that with your children, there's no one to sit around and say, no, no, you have to go play ball with them. No, you have to speak on the phone with them. No, you have to care for them in this way. There's no law. There's no rule of what, all the things you have to do with your kids. But that's not the question for you if you're a follower of Jesus. The question is, what does love require of you? The same is true in your company, your business, your organization. If you're at the point where you're saying, well, my boss never technically said I couldn't do that, or the employee handbook doesn't really cover this area, so it's gray, that's not the question for you, follower of Jesus. The question is, what does love require of you? It raises the bar, it fills in the gaps, and it gives us direction in every decision. And the reason we hold to this standard, because this is the standard that Jesus gave to us. This verse you should know well, John 13, 34, and 35. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. When he says this, he doesn't mean feel something. He doesn't mean emotion. He doesn't mean some sentimentality inside. He goes on to describe it this way. He says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. In other words, love is not defined by the intensity of your emotion, but by your action and by your behavior. 
And it says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. So here's what Jesus says. What does love require of you? It requires that you love people in the same way that Jesus loved you. It raises the bar. It costs us something. It actually demands more out of our life, not less. The question, what does love demand of you, isn't some squishy, sentimental question. It is something that raises the bar as Christians for us, and it should because Jesus says the defining feature of a Christian is not that we go to church. It's not the stuff we say we believe or are against. The defining feature, the way the world will know we are disciples, is by our love. And so here's what that might mean in the decision that you're wrestling with right now. Four things. Love may require you to make a decision that's less convenient. It's easy to make convenient decisions where we just move past difficult things or difficult people, where we just don't include them because they're frustrating or we just move past them because they're annoying. But love demands that we engage with the people we'd rather avoid, the things we'd rather not do. It is less convenient. Listen, love may require you to make a decision that's less efficient. You might just want to bulldoze everyone in your life and just make the decision on what's best for you or your family or your spouse. But love might require you to get the input of other people in your family, other people in your neighborhood, other people at your company. Other people may have to be involved. It's less efficient, but it's more loving. Love may require you to make a decision that's more painful. Oftentimes what we want to do is hit eject on painful situations in our life. So we don't want to go through the process of forgiveness and reconciliation with someone. We would just rather run away. Love demands that we step in. We step into the pain, into the heartache, and the things that it would be easier for us to just push away. The decision to love is the decision to embrace not what's easiest or simplest or most convenient for us, but what God calls us to in the way Christ loved us. And finally, love may require you to make a decision that's more costly, that costs you more from your bottom dollar, that costs more out of your checkbook, that costs more time, that costs more energy, that costs more emotional resource within you. Love may demand that of you because again, the standard for love is not a feeling. It's not an intensity of our emotion. The standard for love is how Christ loved us. And Romans chapter five and verse eight tells us exactly how Christ loved us. It says this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know what the gospel says? When you are at your worst, when you wanted nothing to do with God, while you were rebelling in your sin, rebelling against the God of the universe, you wanted nothing to do with him. You were insulting him. You were an enemy of God. God looked at you and said, I want that man. I want that woman. And I would do anything for them to be in my family, including sending my son to die and rise from the dead so that they might be in my family. That's the love of God. God looked at you at your worst and said, I want her anyway. I want him anyway. This is the gospel we remember. This is the love of God and Christ shown toward us. And it's the love that we are called to show to one another. And it's the love that we remember when we turn to the act of communion. And I invite you right now, if you're online, to prepare your communion elements here in the room. You can take these packets. We're reminded when we take communion of these truths that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That we remember when we take the bread that Jesus' body was broken for our sins and for our salvation that we might become whole in him. In the same way Jesus took the cup, said this is the cup of the new covenant, the new relationship human beings have before God, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. When we drink this cup, we remember that our sin, yours and mine, was fully and finally forgiven on the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus this morning or in this room or watching online, I want to plead with you today to put your faith and trust in Jesus. 
He created you. He loves you. He saw you in your sin. He came to rescue you. He died on the cross, paid for your sins, rose from the dead that you might have new life. And he offers that to you today. Today, right where you sit, you can call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And for those of you who are Christians, who love Jesus and walk with him, communion is a reminder, a reminder of what God has already done on our behalf that we do not need to earn our salvation or God's love. It has already been presented to us in full in the person and work, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna take communion here in just a moment, but the scriptures say that we're not called to rush into communion. We're not called to do so kind of foolishly or just rapidly. We're called to do so with a reflective heart. We're called to confess our sin before the Lord. I love what the psalmist says. He says, search me, O Lord, and know if there's any wicked way in me. God, cleanse me of my sin. And so I want to ask you in a moment, we're going to take a moment of silence for you to go before the Lord. Confess and repent of the sin in your life. Remember the death and resurrection of Jesus. And after this moment of silence, we'll take communion together. Church, we take the bread, we remember. We use this bread to remember the body of Christ broken for us. Let's take and eat in remembrance of Christ. Church, we take the cup. We remember the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of sins that your sin is actually fully and finally forgiven because of Jesus on the cross. Let's take and drink in remembrance of Christ. The scriptures say that every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's set our eyes and our hearts in prayer right now on Christ, anticipating his coming and his return. Father in heaven, I thank you for communion, I thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the bread and the cup and the reminder of the gospel. I pray for every Christian in this room to be reminded of your good news, to be reminded of your mercy and love for them. And I pray for anyone listening to my voice who does not know you. God, would your Holy Spirit do a saving work in them this morning. We pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen. See, when we ask this question, what does love require of me? It turns out there's a simple answer. And the simple answer is it requires you to live and love like Jesus. See, this fifth and final question you ask in the decisions you're making needs to be shaped around the life and the ministry and the actions and the behavior of Jesus. And when I look to Jesus, I see the model of how I'm called to love others. And as I make the decision, whatever decision that might be, the question is, what does love require of me? What does Jesus require of me? Here's the final verses we'll look at in the story this morning, verses 16 and 17. It says they, which means the Israelite community, says they answered Joshua, whatever you commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we fully obeyed Moses, so we will obey you. So the decision is made. They're going into the promised land. 
all of them together, walking in obedience to Christ, believing that God is going to be with them no matter where they go. They're going to walk in obedience to the law. They're going to know God's presence with them. They're not going to be afraid. They're going to be courageous. And while the people in this story did not ask the questions that we specifically asked this morning, they didn't put it this way. They definitely thought through some of the issues we thought through this morning. Some of these issues and dynamics were at play. So let me review the five questions to ask before you decide. The first question, is this the right time to make this kind of decision? For the Israelites, the answer was no, it wasn't the right time while they were mourning the death of Moses. Then the 30-day period ended and now it was the right time for them to make this decision. The second question is this, the obedience question, what did God tell me to do? Well, it was clear to the Israelites. God told us to go in, so we're going in. The decision was made. Verse three is the conscience question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? The tension for the Israelites is, is God going to abandon us when we get in there? Should we really obey this law? Is God really going to be with us and on our side? And the answer to that question is yes, he'll be with us. The force of the cost question. What will this actually cost me? What is it actually going to cost me to be able to make this decision? They had to get their provisions ready. They knew what it was going to cost them. They knew it wasn't going to be simple or easy or fast. And then finally, the relationship question. What does love require of me? They were to go to battle, not just for their own land, but for the land of their neighbors, of their friends, of their family, of their countrymen. These five questions shape their decision. And I hope this morning it's helped shape your decision as well. Perhaps the Holy Spirit of God is working on your heart with one of these questions, asking you to wrestle with this between you and your spouse or you and people in your company, you and the people you're working with to make this big decision. Because I want us to remember that the questions you ask will shape the decisions you make. And when we ask better questions, we end up making better decisions. So this morning, I can't answer all of the questions you have. I don't know the right decision on whether you should retire or move or take this new job or get married or have another child. I can't answer all of those questions, but I can. I can present the questions that you can wrestle with, the questions you can ask, the questions you can bring before the Lord and wrestle with as you make this major decision. I want to leave you with one final question and I want to leave you with one final promise. For me, it's one of the most precious promises in the New Testament. Anytime I'm wrestling with a decision and I don't know what to do, anytime I have a circumstance or a situation that I don't quite know how to handle, I love this verse. James chapter one and verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. I love this verse. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which doesn't mean if you're foolish or you don't know anything. It just means if there's ever a moment in your life where you're not sure what to do, where you're not sure how to handle this, where you're not sure what to say to this person, how to handle this, what decision to make, you don't know what to do. If you ever lack wisdom, it says that you should ask a question. You should ask God. And you know what it says about God? He gives generously. Meaning God's not just going to give you just enough. He's going to give you an overflowing amount for you to make this right decision. And then I love that it doesn't say he gives generously to the good people to the church people, to the people who have done it all right, who have never sinned, who have everything in order. No, no, it says he gives generously to all without finding fault. And then here's the promise. It will be given to you. You know, one of the most precious promises of the New Testament is that if you ask God for wisdom, 100% of the time he will bring it. He will bring it into your life. And so right now as a church, we're gonna pause and ask God for wisdom. We're gonna pause and if you're in a situation where you need wisdom, you're not sure what to do, what to decide, we're going to ask him together and God's going to come through because he's a promise maker and a promise keeper. 
So all across this room, would you bow your heads, close your eyes? And I just have a simple question. If you are making a decision right now, situation you don't know how to handle, decision you're not sure which way you'll go, you don't know what it is, maybe it's small, maybe it's huge in your life, but if you're in the midst of making a decision or deciding what to do right now, would you slip your hand straight up into the air so I can pray for you? You don't have to tell me what it is. I don't need to know what's going on. I just want to know who I can pray for. Say, Pastor, pray for me right now. Let me pray for those of you with hands raised. Father in heaven, I ask for those who are raising their hands and those who could be but aren't. God, I ask that you would bring wisdom into their life. God, help them make the right decision. Help them wrestle with the right questions to come to the right decision that honors you and blesses their life and blesses those around them. God, I pray that that decision would be clear. I pray that they would have peace and I pray that they would have confidence and courage going forward in the decision they have to make. God, your word says you'll give it to us generously. I ask that that promise would be fulfilled in our lives and in our time and in our season and with clarity. And so God, help us make decisions as a church, as people, as families. Help us make decisions in every way that honor you and glorify your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray and all God's people said, amen.